One of the things that I love most about the Bible and about biblical Christianity is the fact that it never downplays the darkness. It never downplays the gloom. It never downplays the sorrow and the pain and the suffering that the people of God will face in this world. And what struck me as I was reading this passage, um, Isaiah 9, what struck me about it in preparing for the sermon this week was that even in predicting comfort, comfort for the people of God and a prediction of hope beyond imagination, Isaiah doesn't downplay the reality of the pain that the people will face. Have you know, did you notice that? That's what struck me this time around on reading Isaiah 9 was how filled with darkness and with gloom and with anguish the passage is before Christ breaks into it to do away with the darkness and to do away with the gloom. If I could tell you a little um, story, basically, uh, that would illustrate this. A few weeks ago, I was in in a bar in the um, suburbs with a friend of mine, and I had gone, basically, to meet some of his friends. And to uh, they're folks who kind of sit around and like to debate and discuss philosophical things and religious worldviews and kind of have an open time. And uh, But on that night, so I'm showing up to meet some folks that I've never met before, And as I get there, a crazy thing happened. It was really crazy. Um, One of the guys came in, and he told everyone sitting at the table that a friend of his had just committed suicide the night before. And so suddenly what happens is our abstract theoretical ideas about the world became unimaginably practical. How would we each offer comfort to a person facing one of the most despairing situations he ever had? And the person that was sitting next to him was into um, Kabbalah. Are you guys familiar with this? Basically, a Jewish mysticism has a lot of similarities with some Eastern religions. And um, he started to say some things like this. I won't get it exactly right, but um, he said things like, hey, death is something that we all have to pass through. It's okay. It's a normal part of the process um, of life. This guy who committed suicide is now in the process of simply being reborn. Um, he's now becoming one with the universe. And that's, you know, I'm not sure he actually said it's a good thing, but that was sort of the, the idea there. This is a normal part of what's going to happen in life. And again, I was, I just met these guys like five minutes ago, but I said, no, you know, um, that's not very comforting. That's not very comforting because um, the Bible never treats death. It never treats pain. It never treats sorrow as something that is just a phase for you to pass through, as something casual, something normal. It constantly refers to it as a problem, as as a destructive force, as an intrusion, as something that was never meant to be as an enemy. That's what resurrection is all about. That's what new life is all about. That's what Jesus Christ is all about. In dying and rising again, he's saying, yes, the death was as bad as you could have possibly imagined it. It was worse suicides, abortions, rapes, miscarriages, whatever they may be, it was worse than you possibly could have imagined. However, I own those things. I can take those things. I can pass through those things. I can defeat and conquer the enemy of death and bring new life in the middle of it and bring restoration and bring healing in the middle of it. And see, if we treat um, all of these things 
as normal or as even helpful or just a process that we're becoming or going through, we have robbed ourselves of real comfort. And in a lot of senses, we've robbed ourselves of the value of human life, the value of human life. What really matters, how much does it matter what you do with your life or how it ends? And here's the deal. Here's what I want to challenge you with today. I think that all of us in one way or another want to agree with the Jewish mystic. (laughs) So I think it's us and you. I don't think it's just him. I think we want to find a way to see death as no big deal. And we want to find a way to dismiss the darkness or just ignore the gloom. And so think it's Christmas. I hope this isn't too negative. (laughs) It's we're getting on to Advent, but I want you to think today, what are the uh, most painful issues that you face in your life? Those things now and this morning, is it a broken relationship? Is it pain from a divorce? Is it um, some sexual addiction? Is it a memory of abuse? What is it and how do you handle it? How do you handle it? Do you avoid talking about it? Do you try to avoid thinking about it? Do you numb yourself with alcohol or try to escape from it with entertainment? Have you developed an entire philosophical system to help yourself feel better about it? Or do you sit in bed, lying awake at night, saying, just suck it up, I can handle this, move on, i got to be able to get over this and work on this on my own. Here's the problem with that. The problem is when you have a warped perspective on the world's darkness, you will also have trouble finding a genuine way out of the darkness. You will have trouble finding a genuine way out of the darkness, and that's what Isaiah is on to in chapter 9. He doesn't soften the blow. He says there is warfare, there is gloom, there is blood, there is oppression. But in the middle of that, there is an in-breaking king, the person of Jesus Christ, who will restore you in ways that were better than you could have imagined. Yes, the darkness is worse than you could have imagined. What Jesus brings is better than you could have imagined. He destroys darkness for the living. And because Jesus is breaking into the world's deepest darkness, you can face whatever it is with hope and with renewal and with trust and with truth. And so the question before us today is how? How do we do that? And I think Isaiah gets us there and helps us to see. And I want to make three points. Number one, Jesus will help you see the darkness for what it really is. And number two, Isaiah is going to call us to believe, not only to see the darkness, but to believe that God is breaking radically into the darkness, violently into the darkness, to deal with the darkness, and then by handing your life over to this king, submitting to him, submitting to this coming king. So let's look at those three things. Um, Take a look back at the passage. First of all, the darkness, the darkness in the passage. Um, It's in verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. And we're going to start with verse 1. You see in verse 1 that there was a former time and that there is a latter time. And the former time was a time when the land itself was burdened or characterized by gloom and contempt and anguish. And what Isaiah is describing is the exile. The Assyrian army would sweep through the northern parts of Israel. And, and, and that's Zebulun and Naphtali and all those places. And they would destroy in a warring way the land itself. And the invasion of the land not only affects the land, but the people. Notice again those two themes we've been talking about, the land and the people 
of God that he has promised. But these chosen people, they would be carried into exile. And, and that's not a pretty picture. That means being put in chains. It means being dragged away. Mother separated from daughters and sons separated from fathers. And that's what it means in verse 2 when he says, they have walked in darkness. That's what it means when it wasn't just darkness. It was a land of deep darkness. They were under the shadow of death. And we, we, we know that some of this was their fault. There was, there was some sin involved, but there's a whole heck of a lot of it that wasn't necessarily their fault. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about, um, in verse four, that they were under a burdensome yoke of an unjust oppressor and they're suffering. They're being abused and beaten by the rod and staff of this oppressor. They've seen the boot of the tramping warrior. They've seen garments stained in blood after a battle. They are enslaved and there's no one to help them. Okay. So the, the, the behind the scenes picture here, which I don't have time to explain too much is that weak Kings like Ahaz could not prevent them from being carried off into exile. Those who were there to protect them proved to be weak and have failed them and couldn't pull them out of the situation and the misery that they were in. So those are the facts. Those are the facts. Christianity, it's not for the faint of heart. Christianity is not for the moralist. It is not for um, the Victorian. It's not for those who think that obeying a set of rules can pull you out of this. Obeying a set of rules will not take them out of exile. It will not take you out of your darkness. It's not for those who even say, hey, everything's going to be okay. Sometimes things are not okay. It's not for those who are going to turn a page and look the other way or sweep things under the rug. When I used to teach high school, I would get so frustrated. And the, the most frustrating year was actually the year I taught at a Christian school. And all of the um, kids who had grown up in Christian homes, I would throw them literature that I thought was the most wonderfully depressing literature in the world. <laughs> like Ethan Frome, you know, it's just, just like, how much human wreckage can the heart inflict upon another heart? I mean, read Ethan Frome. It's only like 90 pages. Go home and read that. And then I would have kids who, they, all they would see is, he out there is the sinner, not me. And they, so I hand them Ethan Frome, enjoy. And they say, I had one student say, Ethan Frome's a pervert. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, no, no. And then I would say really dramatic things that are ridiculous. <laughs> so to a group of ninth graders, I would say, look at the perversion in your own heart. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're Ethan Frome. <laughs> and they're just like, they're like, no, no, we're not. And this guy's crazy. So um, the question, though, is, okay, we, we want to look at the darkness, not just the darkness of the exiles, but our own darkness. So it really does apply. Where is the darkness in your life? Is it a struggle with depression that's ongoing? Is it contempt that you faced from your parents or from your boss or from your friends? Is it deep-seated anguish over loss? Is it isolation? Is it shame? Is it fear? And the question that Jesus Christ himself through Isaiah, the reigning king is asking you, how are you dealing with it? And how are you going to deal with it? And if you don't have a way, look to me, look to me, how will you face it? You cannot keep distracting yourself. You cannot keep hiding from it. You cannot keep hoping that it will go away. But in Jesus Christ, God is breaking into the world.
That's what this passage is about. It takes us to the heart of the passage. You know, I've, I've heard many sermons on the light and on the beautiful metaphors, and we'll talk about those just a little bit. But for me, the key to this passage is how dark the darkness is and how dramatically the, 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 the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is breaking in to destroy the darkness. Think of that word, breaking in. I want you to imagine what it would feel like to have someone break into your house. You may have faced that. You may have, or maybe you you haven't, but think about it. You would probably feel unsettled. You would probably feel disturbed. You would use words like violated or torn apart. And in the same way, listen, Jesus Christ, the child king, is breaking into the house of sin. He is breaking into the house of suffering. He is breaking into the house of of death, and he's tearing it apart. He's ransacking it. It's sort of like FBI agents, you know, going in and they're just tearing everything apart. He is disturbing the darkness. See, in Advent, Jesus does more than arrive. He disturbs the darkness. He won't allow it to remain. He is tearing apart the anguish. He is stealing every single bit of death's power. Every single bit of death's power. And Isaiah is so certain. He has so much faith that this is true that he's using the past tense. Did you notice that? He is looking forward to the future, putting himself in the future and looking back and saying, the sun has been born. The darkness is over. The pain is gone. The warfare has already ceased. And these are the metaphors that he uses. I want to look at three. He says, this arriving king is God arriving as a light shining into the darkness. And the light has shined in verse 1. It has shown. And in verse 2, the people have seen it. You see, there is a reality of the power of it, and there is an opening of their eyes. To use some philosophical language, there's an objective nature to it, and there's a subjective nature to it. And what that means is what we can know has now been changed. How we can perceive of reality is now different. Things can never be the same once Jesus Christ, God himself, born as a man, arrives on the scene. The light has broken in to the darkness. Two, God has arrived in Christ as an emancipator freeing slaves. Think of that image. He's going from prison door to prison door, and he's opening it up, and he's pulling people out, and he's saying, I am going to pull you out by crushing every oppressor. I am going to tie their guns into knots. I am going to free, and the freedom comes. It's an objective reality. The prison doors are open, and notice how the people respond. There's also a subjective experience. They rejoice in verse 3. Their, their, their joy is increased as with the joy at the harvest. This is the greatest party the world has ever known. They are glad as, with, as, as when they divide the spoil at the end of a war. This is a celebration and a feast to end all celebrations and to end all feasts. And what that means is not only has our cognition been changed, not only has our perception been changed, but your status has changed. Freed child freed slave. Once were lost, but now you can see once you were under bondage to slavery and sin, now you can be free. And the third metaphor is God arriving as a general signing a peace treaty at the end of a long war. Think of these these wonderful images. What I love about this one is the general is there 
and the people didn't have any part of the battle. There's not, we don't see the people of Israel fighting to free themselves. We see God himself present. We see the wreckage of warfare. It's kind of like the end of a battle scene. And what's coming is like we get to come in on the tail end of that and we get to help clean up the clean up the mess. We get to take the bloodstained garments and throw them into the fire, which is Christ himself burning and purging away the sins of the world. Maybe a better illustration would be we are the dead bodies. We are the dead bodies on the battlefield laying in wreckage and ruin. And he comes in and he breaks in and suddenly eyes open and bodies are, receive life again, and people stand up. And what you're ripping off is you're ripping off your stains. You're ripping off your shame. You're ripping off the darkness. You're ripping off the blood stains and throwing them into the fire. You can experience not only a new way of seeing and a new status, but real and lasting peace. And Isaiah is calling you to believe that it's true and to see with eyes of faith. See with eyes of faith. Okay, let's look at the third point. The last thing is, this is possible. This is all possible. It is possible to face the darkness with new hope by submitting to the king. See, this is possible because God, this light, God, this emancipator, God, this general, arrives in a counterintuitive way. He arrives in a surprising way, in a shocking way, as the child king born in Bethlehem, and Isaiah invites you to submit to his coming rule. And last week, Steve talked to you about the establishment of a peaceable kingdom. There is, There could be no peaceable kingdom without a peaceable king, without a person to rule it and to guide it and to direct it. And look at who he will be. Look at what this one will be like. He will come as a child, we said, If you look at verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And yes, I did listen to a little bit of the Messiah this morning. That was actually at Julie's request. He is also the son of David and the son of God who represents all of God's people who can do things for them that they cannot do for themselves. He alone will carry the weight of rule upon his shoulder. And this is how he is described. Wonderful counselor. That means he has the wisdom of God himself. He is able to make right decisions which will protect people and provide for them and give new life. He is a prince of peace, which means he's the only righteous man the world has ever known. The whole man, the perfect man, bringing that peace, bringing that wholeness, bringing that renewal. He is God himself, mighty God, everlasting father. No one else can receive these titles except for Jesus Christ. In Matthew, in Matthew 4, 12 through 17, he says, when Jesus came to Galilee and when Jesus started preaching the kingdom is here, this very prophecy was fulfilled. He had arrived. He has arrived. He is coming. He is present with us, and he is inviting you to submit to his rule. Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And he has, he reigns and rules from heaven because he has risen from the dead. And where he is there, he is calling you to receive his rule. Just like Mike was saying, we need leadership. We need good leaders. We need guidance. We need, we need rule. It's one of the reasons people get so upset over the whole, um, the, the Sandusky sex scandal, why does it matter that Joe Paterno didn't do anything when he heard that something was wrong? Because he was in charge. He was in charge. 
the people in charge. That's where the buck stops. And Jesus Christ says, you need my leadership, my guidance, my presence, no human institution. There is not a governmental system. There is not an economic philosophy. There is not a football coach. There is no human system that the world has known that will not fail you at some point. It will fail you somewhere. But what you need is a king who will live forever. One of my favorite Shakespeare plays, there's about 40 of them, is Richard II. And in it, I won't give you the whole story because of time, Richard is usurped from his throne. He's deposed. He hands over his crown. And this is what he says. They're trying to comfort him. He says, of comfort, let no man speak. And then he gets down a little ways and he says, here's what I'm going to do. For God's sake, let's sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings. How some of them have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. It's not that the institutions are too great to overcome. It's that they're too weak. If you can knock off a human king while he's sleeping, you need something more than a human king. You need one who cannot die. And the new world that Isaiah imagines is the world ruled by one who cannot die. He is the one who reigns and rules on David's throne. This is David's greater son, the one we are waiting for, and the language is all over the place in this passage, of his government, there will be no end. Over his kingdom, he will rule it with justice and with righteousness, this time and forevermore, God himself will do this. That means in Jesus, you have an advocate who will face the darkness for you. You have an advocate who will face the darkness with you. You have God who would become a man. You have the eternal breaking into the temporal world. You have a prince who would die to bring you peace. That's more than suck it up. That's more than move on. That's more than, yes, you're just going to be reincarnated. That is new life and real help and victory that this world has never known. And he's bringing it right down into your heart. And he's saying today, all I'm asking you is to give your life over to me. That's it. All of it. And so you ask yourself, have I done that? And that involves just taking your crowns and throwing them off. And it may be the crown of some philosophical system that you've set up that just won't work. It may be the crown of some immoral behavior that you are trapped in. It may be the crown of bitterness or of fear. But he's saying, take those things off. Believe in me. Believe in me. And receive new life out of the darkness, in the pain, in the suffering. I will come right there with you and beside you and walk you through it and transform you and transform you with his power. Let's pray that he would do that in our hearts this season. Lord, we hide and distract ourselves and do all sorts of things to cover darkness I pray that you would expose who we really are and that we would see great need <clears throat> and that we would see great grace of victory and a fire and the garments burned away in the fire.
that we could not muster up ourselves. Help us to receive you and rest on you by faith alone for our salvation um, now and throughout um, this season. Keep these things in our mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.